Today is Thanksgiving. What do we most have to be thankful for? There's a big clue up there on the slide. <laughs> for the inexpressible gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And uh, today, I would like to talk about this gift and being blessed by it. So, uh, I'm going to make a jump now into the subject I'm going to talk about, and then we're going to come back to how the gift addresses that. Almost all of us have internal voices that are self-critical. Voices that say things like, um, you're always messing up. You could be doing so much better if you got your act together. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Yeah, yeah. If people could see what you're really like, you'd have no friends. Have you ever heard that inside? Um, for some of us, these voices are stronger. And they say things like, you are not enough. You are deeply flawed. You're a loser. You'll make a mess of your life and die a failure. You get what I'm talking about here? You can relate to that. Um, sometimes it's even stronger than that. We can have a voice that says, you're bad. You're just a bad person. Deep inside you is some very nasty stuff. You would be covered in shame if people knew the truth about you. People who really knew, you'd just be, oh, you'd be so covered in shame. You are disgusting. You need to be punished. And it's voices like this that are behind the epidemic that we have in this world today of self-harm, of eating disorders, of behavior that is self-sabotaging. Voices like this that are so destructive. So one important question is where these voices come from. Where do they come from? Where is this voice that tells us about how bad we are? Well, there is a voice of God in the conscience. And the voice of God is the one who is speaking truth to us. And we know, I'm not going to go through the scriptures, that's another study, but many voices telling us that there is a conscience which is from God, or many, many scriptures telling us that. But there is also a voice that originates in what the Bible calls, or who the Bible calls, the accuser. The other, another name for Satan. And we've internalized that voice. Now, I'm not saying that Satan himself is talking to each one of us, just that we have internalized these accusations that originate from him. In uh, Romans, in Revelation 12:10, it says, For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And my goal today, what I would like to accomplish, is to learn to distinguish between God's voice and the voice of the accuser, and to experience the peace, joy, and victory that God wants for us. Are you, are you into that? Does that sound good? Does that sound like a good goal? So I'm going to do three things. We are going to look at a passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 8 and verses 31 through 39. And then we are going to look at three accusations and three answers in that passage. And we're going to end by talking about how the accuser is defeated. So let's look at the passage then. And um, what, if I bring this passage up, uh, the, the, the question is, how shall we respond to this truth? And the first eight chapters, first seven chapters of Romans, he's been talking about the uh, victory that Jesus Christ has won and the triumph over, over sin and death. And he climaxes in Romans 8 verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's like the victory cry. But then after developing that through up to verse 30 and really how this works out, then he says, how shall we respond to these things? How shall we respond to these things? In other words, um, what is what is what, what what happens in us after hearing this stuff? Like, what's the payload? What's the actual result of all of these things? And this moves us into this passage, and the passage um, has sections. And I'm going to argue the three parts of this passage, and they're all introduced by what we call a rhetorical question. So. Uh, a rhetorical question is a question you ask and you know what the answer is. You, you're assuming the answer. So if I were to say, um, uh, oh, do you think I'm stupid or something? Then most of you would assume that I'm saying, um, that I don't think I'm stupid. Bill would say yes, because Bill answers rhetorical questions. But, <laughs> but if I say something and I'm assuming the answer, um, then that's a rhetorical question. And so he says, so for example, if God is for us, who can be against us? Well, what's the answer he's assuming? No one. That's right. Nobody. And the second one, verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. If God who justifies, who is who condemns? Nobody. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. And so this is a rhetorical question, and these mark out the sections of this passage. So I'm going to read through and make some comments on this as we go down. So uh, uh, then start, so verse 31, how shall we respond to these things? The first one is God is for us. Who can be against us? Because if God is the supreme being, and he is for us, obviously nobody can be against us. And then that is bolstered up with another argument, which is an example of this. 
He who did not spare his own son, in other words, the most precious thing God had, he's already given us him to us. He's already given the most precious gift. How will he, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So if he's given us the biggest thing he could possibly give us, why would he withhold anything else? And so that is this backing up, his claim that God is for us. So that's the first response. The second one, who shall bring any charges, any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge? So this is the idea of a law court, which could be on the last day, but actually, when you look at it, it's actually really ongoing. And this is talking about the kind of thing I was referring to earlier, about accusations. So he says, it's God who justifies Who is to condemn? Like God is the ultimate judge. And if the ultimate judge says, you're okay, everything is good, there's no charges that can stand against you. And he is the supreme judge of all supreme judges. And he says that. Who can possibly condemn you? Uh, And then he says something very interesting, which we're going to come back to. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So there's there's a a step where he he died, he was raised, he's at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. And so not only has God justified us, but in this law court, the one who's our attorney for defense is Jesus Christ. He is the attorney who's defending us. And um, I should say that this passage here is, I've, I've, I, I can read Greek, so I've, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at the Greek in this passage and just, just checking the translation, and this is my translation of it. Um, it's an incredible piece of Greek. It's absolutely beautiful. It's, a, it's basically poetic where everything is woven together and in a very striking way, in just, in just a very beautiful way, um, almost like um, he wants people to memorize it because it's just such a piece of, a beautiful piece of work. And um, so this is four-step climax here. He's now interceding for us. Uh, but there's a hint here that, that there is actually an enemy who's condemning us. So something here is, is, is hinting that there might be a condemnation we would have to address. And then we develop that into this last section. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? So again, no, the assumption, no, none of those things would sep- could separate us. Not even the worst things that could, could happen. And he's writing to a society where there's no social umbrella. There's no, there's no disability. There's no pension. You know, the, the, and plus there were wars, there were famines, there were disasters all the time. And so these were really real worries to them, these things. And he says, no, these can't separate you from the love of, of Christ. And then he says... As it's written, 
For your sake, we have been killed all the day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, this is a quote from a psalm. It's a quote from Psalm 44. And I've actually preached this a number of years ago, um, but I don't expect you to remember it. But there's, there's, there's quite an amazing thing that happens. Um, psalm 44 is one of the two most depressing psalms in the 150. Psalm 44 and Psalm 48 end in blackness. There's no hope at the end. They're just dark, 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 dark. And I puzzled a long time and prayed a long time over Psalm 44. What's going on in this? And this is a quote from Psalm 44. This is a quote from, um, what, what does it mean to follow God? This is what happens. Psalm 44 says, look, God, we've, we've done this. Like we've, we've not been unfaithful to you and all this stuff has happened. And, um, but some, the, the two previous Psalms to, uh, are actually uh, two parts of the same Psalm. Although they're given two separate numbers in our, in our book, they are part A and part B and they share a chorus together. And so the two, psalm, two previous Psalms belong together as a pair. What the following Psalms in Psalm 44 is an amazingly uplifting, the absolute opposite. It's about a conqueror. It's a conqueror, Jesus Christ, who goes out to conquer and then he has a bride. And the bride is lifted up and you end up with this wedding of pure joy of the bride and the bridegroom. And... Um, in this pure joy, the, the, the conquering bridegroom loves the bride. And what you see in this is amazing. Paul is summarizing Psalm 45 in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, which is exactly what the, the next psalm is saying. And what I see is a, just, just a beautiful answer to this problem is Psalm 44 is answered in Psalm 45. They're a pair. And Paul has put them together here. All this bad stuff is happening. But the answer to the bad stuff is a victorious king of kings. And he's chosen you to love. And you get this wonderful picture of this, this, this uh, wedding. It's like Song of Solomon. She's just filled with joy and she's marrying this king of kings. And it's, it's the bride. It's, it's the, uh, the wedding of of. Christ and his people, pictured in this. So what he's saying here is, um, what should you be afraid of when this is your destiny? And then we go on to a beautiful, um, a beautifully structured poetic ending. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this is the climax. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute because we're going to talk about how these speak to our problems in just a minute. So that is the that's the passage that we're going to be looking at today. And so I'm going to, um, let's, um, let's move on then. I'm going to talk then about 
what our problems are. So we've, we've looked at this passage and we're now going to look at three accusations and three answers to them. So guilt and shame. Now, I've looked at every reference to shame in the Bible, and I, this is how I would define the word, the way it's used in the Bible. Guilt is when you know you've done something wrong. You know, you know you've done something, you've messed up. Shame is when other people see that. Shame is the relational side of it. So I don't want other people to see it because then I'll be... Uh, they'll see what I'm like. So when's the first example of shame we have in the Bible? Yeah? They, they hid in the garden. Yeah, that's right. They hid. Adam and Eve hid when, when God came after they'd sinned. That is shame. It's the relational feeling. Um, so, so it's important to distinguish between these two things starts with guilt, we've done something wrong, and then there is shame. And um, now, often, um, when we've really, really done something wrong, and shame is, is legit, uh, guilt is legitimate, then actually, shame is a good thing. Um, so when you call somebody out for doing something wrong, say there's somebody in power and they've done something they shouldn't and they get called out for it, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because it motivates them not to, because then they, 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 they're embarrassed and the shame is a force that propels people back into doing the right thing. So, for example, if you saw, in fact, there was a, on the street, there was a blind man who was begging and he collected some coins and you saw me go up and steal one of his coins, then you would be doing the right thing by calling me out on that because I would deserve to be called out on that. And shame would be the right response for me. So, so there is a right kind of shame. There's a good kind of shame. And I wouldn't say good, it's, it's a necessary kind of shame. That's important. But um, the problem is there, is there are two kinds of guilt. There's true guilt and there's false guilt. And I'm going to show it like this. True guilt, I know it was wrong. I, I did it, it was wrong. False guilt says, I'm a failure. I'm, I'm just a disaster. I'm never going to do any better. It's this voice we've been talking about that it just piles stuff on you or maybe has a standard higher, you know, I never finished all that stuff that I was supposed to do. Not, no matter the fact that you couldn't possibly have finished it, but the voice says, you should have done it all. Why didn't you do it? This internal voice. And this is the I am a failure. This is false guilt. This is not God speaking to you, but the accuser speaking to you. This is, um, sometimes the conscience can get um, damaged and the conscience can give this, but generally speaking, it's this internal uh, accusation that we get, this whisper that we're a failure, we're no good. And what happens then? We get a, a, a kind of a shame which is really toxic. And it says, people won't want to be around me if they know what a failure I am, what a loser I am. I'm going to be abandoned. I'm going to be isolated. And so the, the shame uh, is, is really toxic and it stops us functioning. Uh, I'm just going to expand on this a little bit. Um, so um, to try and to develop this a little bit more. Um, 
So, actually, let me, let me just give you an example. Um, suppose, let's look at the, 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 tr- the, the top one, the true guilt. Supposing um, you received a letter that says, it's come to light that you lied on your immigration, we'll be contacting you soon about your expulsion from Canada. Can you imagine getting a letter like that? How do you feel when you get that? Pretty horrible, right? It's, it's a, and I want to say that the guilt is a hor- it's one of the most painful feelings that we can get. Partly, like in this example, we're going to be punished for it. But, 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 but the, 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 this guilt is one of the most painful things that we can get. Um, and uh, uh, so, so uh, let me give you another example. Um, you were selfish. And you called in sick because uh, you wanted to finish watching some movies. So you called into work sick, uh, you were not sick. And then later you discovered that your co-worker, you talked to her on the phone, and she had a terrible day because she was having to make up for you and it was just a disaster for her and she's just feeling so bad. How do you feel about that? Well, you feel bad because you, you put her through this. And, and so actually... The, the guilt is, is motivated by love very often, that we hurt somebody we love, and that makes us feel bad. And, so, uh, and that's a corrective feeling that drives us back. And this is a gift from God, this conscience, um, because it, um, if you didn't care about your co-worker, you wouldn't feel bad. But um, So often this pain of the conscience is because we do hurt other people. Uh, so what do we do to avoid this pain when we have this painful conscience that tells us we're bad we and sometimes it's so intensely painful we try and do other things how do we avoid the pain here well we can do things like we can blame other people so adam said the woman you gave me made me do it and we can rationalize the woman said, well, the reason I did it because I was tricked by the serpent. Um, one res- extreme response is, is suicide, to avoid the pain. Judas, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Then he went out and hanged himself. And sometimes the pain is so intense that people, rather than live with the pain, they hang themselves. I, I want to summarize all of this and come to this slide here. We'll put it all together and talk about three different problems we face then. So on the top left, we have true guilt. I am guilty and I'm scared of being punished. So this should be like the example of I lied on my immigration. I'm I'm scared. They're going to get caught out with this. Um, I I lied on my tax and they're going to find me and I'm going to have to pay. And this this sort of thing is the... um, is the first one I want to deal with. It's guilt for something we did wrong. And we do stuff wrong because we're fallen creatures. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to deal with is the underneath that false guilt. I'm a failure. My life will fail and I will have nothing. I'm just a mess, a worthless waste. I am hopeless. So the key thing here, the key idea is I'm going to end up with nothing. Because look at what I'm doing. Look, at, uh, You know, I, I, I haven't worked properly for my exams. I'm going to fail my exams. Then I'm, gonna f- I'm not even going to graduate. Because, and then what am I going to do then? I'm going to be 
I'm not going to be able to get a job and my life is going. And so I'm going to end up by having nothing. So this is not relational. This is about me being, being um, hopeless. And then the last one is the shame. And actually, I want to say that whether it's true or false shame, it's the same on the right there. And what, what this, this voice says to us, this accusing voice says, people won't want to be around me. I will be abandoned and isolated. I am destined to be lonely and rejected because nobody wants to be near such a stinking mess. And this is the voice that we hear inside. So these are three problems that we have. And I want to argue that those three sections we saw in Romans match exactly these problems that we have. Isn't that cool? These are the three problems and they exactly match. So the first one, we have to remember this because I can't show you this slide and the Romans at the same time. So the first one is I'm guilty and I need to be punished. The next one uh, is um, I'm a failure. My life will fail. I have nothing. And the last one is abandoned and isolated. Okay. So the first one we're going to deal with actually is the... uh, I'll, I'll have nothing, and you'll see that in a moment. So let's look at the, the go back to the passage now. Um, so how should we respond to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the idea that you're going to end up with nothing because you're such a loser you're just going to end up with that. That is totally false. God is going to make sure everything works out for you. Your destiny is amazing and extraordinary. And the lie that because you're, you're a failure, you're going to end up with, with nothing, it's a lie. You're going to end up with everything because it's already been decided. And so this is the hopeless lie. This is the lie that your future is hopeless. And the answer is no. Your future is the opposite to hopeless. You've already been given Jesus. You're going to get everything. And Paul wants us to internalize that truth here. He wants us to speak this truth into ourselves. Yeah, you know what? God, and he is the greatest being, he wants me to have everything Everything. He's already given me his son. Like, what do I have to worry about? Really? I mean, he does want me to work hard. He does want me, but but my future happiness is not dependent on what I can produce, what I can, can, can achieve, that my meeting my goals. No, whether I meet my goals or not, that's really not going to have any make any difference as to whether I get I gain all this thing all these things that God has given me and we need to detach that we need to detach this worry that I'm not enough to do I'm just not enough there's not I'm not going to be able to, we need to take away this worry and say no God is enough he is enough you don't have to worry here and so that that first answer then is um he's given Jesus to you, won't he give everything to you? Won't he give everything to you? Answering that first problem. So the next one, 
we're going to look at is the, the top left there. I'm guilty and scared of being punished. And here is the, the charge in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So the answer then is that the price here has been paid for. It's already paid for by Jesus on the cross. And so um, Jesus is, he's already covered all the costs. Yes, what you did was wrong, and there is a penalty to pay, but it has already been paid. So going back to our example of the immigration, you know, you've, uh, you, you lied on your immigration, and you did lie, and you, you're going to be, you're going to be um, uh, uh, expelled from Canada. Um, well, what Jesus has done here is he said, um, first of all, I've, I've, um, I've submitted a, 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 um, a, a, all the paperwork that I'm personally going to be adopting you and bringing you into Canada, and you actually don't have to follow that path you were following before at all. I've got a new way of making you bring you in. But secondly, any, any things, any fines you've had or anything like that, I've already paid them. And actually, I've already wiped away all of those records, and so you are you are good. You are you are you are clean. In fact, there's going to be no record that you ever lied because of the way I've been. I've done it, and I'm the very best lawyer, and I can do that sort of thing because I understand all how, all how these things work. So, what Jesus has done then? He's not only he's not denying that you've done wrong, and you do do wrong. You do break God's commands all the time, but he's saying, I'm actually looked after that for you. And nobody can accuse you because now you are, you're actually, you're clean. And that, and that it was the old you that did those things. Now I talked about this last week, and so I'm not going to spend a long time on it, but the argument here is that you die, he died and was raised. The argument is uh, that we died with him and the old part of us that did all the wrong things died and on the cross. And so that part of us is counted as dead. And the new part of us that we gain, the new creation, doesn't sin. It, the new part of us is new in Jesus. And any sins that we do are done by the old part that died on the cross. So the argument then here is that this cannot stand against his accusations. It can't stand because Jesus is going to make sure that you're clean before any accusers. So that's part two. Part three was the relational one. If people knew what I was like, they, would, they wouldn't want to see me. They wouldn't want anything to do with me if they knew how bad I was. And this is addressed in this last part here. Um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of the sword? So um, those physical things that might separate us. And then the relational things also, 
Um, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers. So let's just take a moment uh, thinking about these before I just rattle through them. Um, Death nor life. So death is first on the list because death is like the big separator, isn't it? That's that's the big. Some somebody people have, have said, and I, I agree with this, that the 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 worst fear that any human being has is death. That's like the number one fear of anything. It's it, it's 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 um, the the big enemy. And he's saying neither death nor life. And this the way he's using words is by taking extremes. He's encompassing everything in between. So if I said to you, <clears throat> you know, um, from the east to the west, there's nothing. You know, that's you're, you're saying, and everything in between. And it's like, it's, it's, you're encompassing everything. Um, so, so that's the, the, um, the death or life. And then he says, not angels, nor rulers. Now, this is interesting. Because in the parlance, and I'm going to be talk a little bit more in, in just a minute in Colossians, but at that time, in that society, there was a huge, strong belief in the reality of demonic forces. And there was also occult practices, all kinds of things happening. But the, because it was a pagan religion, the occult, the the, uh, the demonic forces were sometimes quite visible, and um, but not only that. Um, even apparently, and this quite surprised me, but there's a lot of evidence in archaeology that that the Jewish faith had also got a lot of this belief in it, and they'd rewritten a lot of the Old Testament writings to include all kinds of demons in there. And we can find these writings, they're kind of, they've woven the demons in. And wearing magic bracelets to protect against demons was, was very common in the time of Jesus because there was a strong belief in the demonic. And he's naming here angels or rulers, and they would be the names, if you look in the Greek, those would be the names these people gave to these forces and also powers. They would, they would be called powers. And these, these things, and this is what they would believe would be making the accusations, separating us. This is what would be accusing us. And in fact, uh, Satan is called the accuser, as I read earlier. And so uh, the, 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 the society where there's all of this evil stuff going on and, and um, that is causing all kinds of, of internal um, self-destructive behavior, self-destructive thinking. Is, is one of the things Paul is addressing here. And so he says, none of these forces, these evil forces, whether or not they exist, whether or not you're imagining or real, these forces, none of these can separate you from the love of God. And then neither height nor depth, and this is again is extreme, not from the very highest to the very lowest, nothing there can separate you or, or anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. And um, that then is how he answers those three questions, those three accusations from the book of Romans. And then I just want to, uh, to 
how to end by pulling this all together with how the accuser is defeated. How is the accuser defeated? And to see the answer to that, I'm going to go over to a parallel passage in Colossians. And this parallel passage goes into a little bit more depth of how the accuser is defeated. You being dead in your trespasses, he made alive. In other words, sin is real in your life and this is leading you to die as a punishment. But Jesus has, has carried that and, and he's become alive. So you've become alive, forgiving all your trespasses, wiping out the record of debt against us with its decrees. And that which was hostile to us, even this, he's removed out of the way, nailing it to the cross. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Having stripped rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, this is not, verse 15 is is, uh, not the easiest verse when you first read it. I'm going to explain this to you because this is where I want to, to end by understanding what this means. Because this is critical. These rulers and authorities are names for the demonic world. And as I was talking about, and they're Satan's emissaries who accuse us. And they are the ones who, I'm not saying that every one of you has got demons speaking into you, but the thought they originates with demons. This accusations originate with demons. And their accusations are legitimate because you are, you've sinned, you've done wrong things. We all know it. The legitimate accusations. But... Jesus has stripped them of their power by dying on the cross. They can no longer accuse you because Jesus has carried the burden. And this is the core of what I want you to get today, is that those accusations have no validity anymore because Jesus defeated the accusers by taking all this load off you. You can walk free now, Because he has taken that off you. And all of those three things we looked at in Romans are the work of Jesus. He's lifted off you this accusing voice, which is ultimately is the voice of the evil one. He's defeated your accuser. He has defeated the voice in your head, which tells you that you are garbage. You're a failure. You're going to suffer. He's defeated them on the cross by taking you with him, joining himself to you. He's died in your place. He's raised a new creation, perfect, spotless, and you're part of that. And in doing that, he has won the victory. And then Colossians 2 goes on. Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath. And these are, I'll come back to this, what this is which are a shadow of things to come, but the realities of Christ. Let no one disqualify you from the prize, insisting on self about So this is like a humility that they were supposed to have. I'm useless. I'm, I'm garbage. Let no one disqualify you from the prize by making these accusations against you. So I want to, I want to talk about like what this means to us now. 
And I want to talk about how we cope, we try to cope with these voices and how this is what we need to address this morning as a response to what Jesus has done. Well, we, we numb them out. We numb this voice out. We distract it. We, we binge eat. We binge Netflix. We, 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 we take drugs or alcohol or something like that to numb out this pain, to numb out this voice that is speaking, that's accusing us. Um, uh, self-punishment, self-harming, as I spoke about, this is going on in our society. We may punish ourselves in different ways. One way of punishing ourselves is with illegalism, setting ourselves all these rules that we have to do. That's what Paul was talking about in that verse in Colossians. All of these rules that they set up, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And um, this is part of the attraction of extreme Christian groups where there's so many things to do because somehow you feel if you do them all, then somehow it takes away the accusation because you've done all of this stuff. So we can become very legalistic as a way of doing this. Uh, or we can, can go the other way. We can have uh, what I call the armor of narcissism. A narcissistic person is, um, uh, he's got this protective layer. I am, I am important. Nobody must say anything about me that doesn't lift me up. I'm the most important person in the world. And they get very angry if anybody says anything negative. And it's actually, they're trying to protect this terrified person inside who, who feels worthless with this cover of, I'm the most important person. Another thing is a retreat into nothingness. I'm just nothing. I'm I'm uh, last week. Ginny was talking about that the, her her own the book that she wrote, which is about um, escaping this nothingness that she was feeling. Anxiety, having an anxiety attack, or just feeling an anxiety that actually covers over this stuff and functions to stop us feeling this these accusations and this guilt. Minimizing it. Hey, no, it's, it's nothing really. You know, and, and using that, and that doesn't really work, but it kind, can kind of work uh, on the, in the short term. Underneath, we know that it's true. Blaming. Oh, you know, I'm a victim. It was something that was done to me. Yeah, you know, all the stuff that was done to me, and that might be true. We may be a victim. But when we blame that, uh, then it's a way of trying to cope with our own behavior rationalization, which is another variant of that. You know, I did that, but you know, that's, that's just by the way that I am and the way that things are trying to get around this. And then a, a very, very sad but, but true thing is um, the body can create sickness. There's a, there's a, a doctor um, in Vancouver called Gabo Mate who's written a book called When the Body Says No about when this, our body, we're, we're, our, our mind is telling us, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, and we've got so many things, and we're going to end up by killing ourselves just trying to do everything, and so our body creates some problem, and we can't do it. And, and that gives us a reason why we, we can answer back, oh, you know, I, uh, how could I possibly do all of those things you're telling me to because I've got this physical problem? But actually, the body is saving us by creating this problem. And so uh, this, this is our society. Our society is plagued with guilt that shows in this way and other ways. I could list some other ways where our society is responding under weight of all of this guilt. Some of it true guilt, 
Some of it guilt that's, 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 that's hinted by the enemy has spoken into our lives in order to bring us uh, uh, lives that are broken and full of pain. So I'm going to end just by reading this passage again. And I really want you to take this in as we read it. And so we're going to start then, how shall we respond to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You have nothing to worry about. Your future is amazing. Your hope is unshakable. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who can condemn? Jesus Christ, the one who died, more than that was raised with you, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us right now, answering every accusation. He, he is our attorney on our side and is able to destroy every accuser because of what he's done on the cross. And that was what the passage in Colossians focused on. He's, he can wipe out anything that's coming against us. Nobody can condemn us. And then finally, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or any physical problems? As it's written, for your sake we're killed. We've been killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you take that in this morning? Can you receive that? I think all of it, we can't just do it instantly, but I want to challenge you. Walk a life that takes this in. Go home and read it again. Just bathe yourself in this truth because this is the answer to the accuser, the one who wants to destroy you, the one who wants to, 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 to make you condemn yourself all the time, to take away all your joy, to destroy you. He wants that. Jesus has defeated him. Jesus wants you to take this in and to know that you will never be separated. And notice in that list, it doesn't say, oh, but you know, your own messing up could separate you from his life, from, from Jesus. No one else could, but you know, you could separate yourself just by, by complete disaster. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that you could do this by not being good enough. No. Nothing can separate you. So I just want you to, to, to join me in prayer now that we will receive this. Can we do that? 
Father, we thank you for these words here that we've read today. And we thank you, Father, that you understand us so well. And you see what we're struggling with so well. And you've sent Jesus to us because you know what it's like for us. And you've given him to us because you want us to experience joy forevermore. And thank you, Father, that Jesus is joined to us inseparably. We are joined to him forever. Thank you, Father. Thank you. And we ask now, God, that all of us will really be able to take this in and use this to deflect the attacks, the criticisms which are going to come from the voices inside and to cling to you instead. Help us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.